Welcome to this month's episode of Finding Perfect Property, Diary of a Buying Agent, where we open our black book of trusted contacts and bring you expert advice from industry leaders at the very top of their game. We're your hosts, Camilla Dell and Casper Harvard-Walls, partners of Blackbrick, and today we're thrilled to be joined by Sarah Conway, partner and head of real estate at private client law firm Morris Turner Gardner, also known as MTG for short, and Edward Burton, partner within the real estate team at MTG. Sarah and Edward established the real estate practice within MTG 10 years ago. Prior to joining MTG, they both worked at Allen & Overy LLP, specialising in both high-value residential and commercial transactions. Over the last 10 years, they've grown the real estate practice within MTG into one of London's leading go-to law firms for London's super prime buyers, agents and advisors. And we are absolutely delighted that they're able to join us as our special guests for our 10th episode of our podcast. Sarah and Edward, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast today. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. Yeah, what an yes. introduction. Yeah. Are we going to live up to this to. now? We shall see. Fine. I want to start, Sarah Edward, 10 years. I mean, that's amazing. It's gone by so quickly. And congratulations to both of you for building the most amazing business within MTG. Um, conveyancing is such a competitive part of the industry. So is, so is, the, so is my industry. There's just a, a lot of firms out there, um, hundreds of lawyers operating in your field. What do you think has been the secret to your success? I think our availability um, is one of the most important things. Our, we, we always seek to be the best and our skills and our technical knowledge, we hope, is what the clients see. Um, attention to detail and hard work. I think it's hard work. See, that's what I was going to say. I think it's yeah. just that it's the hard graft yeah. doing it and doing the hours and doing the learning. I think that's probably the biggest thing that we found that's brought us forward. And when you first started, um, how did you make a name for yourself? Well, I remember a very greeting uh, <laughs> that happens in this very room where you both turned up and sort of said, hi, we're... And I think you said, Camilla, who are you? I did. I did. But just talk me through, how did you build your business? How did you start to get clients? We were very lucky. Yeah. And this is what people, you know, it's very kind everything you've said, but MTG is a fabulous platform and it's a a fantastic heritage back from the A&O days. And so we had a great platform when we started, but I think it's just not being frightened to meet people and tell them that you want to work with them and hoping that that takes and it sometimes does but but people want to work with good people don't yeah and actually we're all searching for people to work within this sort of private card space who can support each other and that's what when i you know people talk about you guys i think your reputation goes before you of looking after clients really really well but but i actually think that's so important it is really for me the thing that i think has kept my clients happy is turning the world of conveyancing which is frustrating confusing particularly for international clients you know the leasehold system we can come and talk about that in a bit but interpreting that for people in a way that is vaguely intelligible is probably the thing Mm. that i think is most important in doing this and finding a way to do it in five working days or ten working days that i think is the secret but i think as going back to the question it's the tenacity as well so when you start a new business you can't think that everything is going to come to you. Look at us, we're at MTG, we've got this wonderful platform. You have, we could have just sat there and 
not done a lot of work and just been very nice and um, been fed internally. But we knocked on doors. You did? You knocked um, on our door? Yeah, we knocked on your door. Perturbed. And here we are. I'm very glad you knocked on door because we've had a brilliant working relationship with you guys ever since. No, We're always really interested how people sort of got into their career. So so why, Sarah, why, why law? <laughs> uh, and why real estate? Why law? I came from a, a family that was, um, I suppose I want stability. And my father was an artist. So you either had it or you didn't. It was a bit of an up and down life. And, you know, we'd go on holiday and we'd all get in the car and he'd drive all over Europe or wherever for weeks and weeks. I just wanted to go on a two-week holiday, like my friends, yeah. somewhere normal, other than being told, do you want to sleep or do you want to eat? But looking back, that was amazing experience that he opened us up to. But from that, I thought, I want a proper job and I... I found law because I liked a bit of Ali McBeal, you know, Rumpole of the Bailey, you're probably too young to know that. I remember Ali McBeal. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, got, getting an interested taste in law. I had friends who were law, um, friends, family, lot who were lawyers, and really found an interest in that. At the beginning, I actually wanted to be a criminal lawyer, and I found that fascinating, and I loved going, you know, as a trainee, well, it was an article clerk back in my day, going to the Crown Courts and defending... Um, people it was really interesting but got married had children and you need you need to actually have that stability even further then so I could control my days and my time and actually I love property I absolutely love it always looking in the magazines and you know you're nosy aren't you yeah. so <laughs> I love it um yeah and so that was my transition and it we were saying earlier it it's hard work, but actually we've had some fun along the oh, way. Yeah. Um, so no, I wouldn't. Well, you might have changed it. Yeah, I didn't. For you, it. So yeah, it was a bit of a different, actually completely the reverse. <laughs> <It's funny laughs> Both my parents are actually lawyers. And so my father is you know, he's a very wise man. His first piece of advice about choosing a career was whatever you do, do not become a lawyer. We've had enough of them around. Please do something, and I quote, more interesting. But anyway, it's sort of, led into this via a geography degree um and then i got a training contract in alan overy and it's sort of spiraled from there and i don't regret it at all um sometimes in the micro moments i might regret it but overall it's been a fantastic you know fantastic career um so you have an, an amazing reputation i'm going to read uh, a little quote from chambers 2022 their high net worth guide her ability to work through complex deals and protect her client yet be commercial is always very impressive and others know Nothing is too much for Sarah. Uh, she's top of the tree. These are amazing <laughs> testimonials. Um, how do you stay commercially focused on deals and yet still put the client first? I don't really think they're mutually exclusive. The client always comes first, but their deal has to come first because that's what's important to them. So it's 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 actually working very you know hard with the client to make sure you're available for them. You're there. You're in the detail on the deal. Um, yeah, it's just it's all about hard work and keeping everybody happy. Which which leads us into this kind of thing that we're all struggling with, which is work-life balance. Mm. We've we've been talking this week at, at Blackbrick about all of these different communication channels that we're dealing with now. That when we started just didn't really exist. Yeah. I mean, obviously email we've had all the way through, but now WhatsApp, Instagram, we've got Facebook, we've got mm -hmm. Twitter, 
I remember when facts came in and we all went, oh, no, you know? So, yeah, I've seen a super amount of change. And, you know, back in the day, it was a lot easier to control. There wasn't this, you know, draw on your time where clients, even international clients, um, didn't expect you to respond instantly because there was none of that media in order to do so. But now, I think over the last sort of six months, I think I'm trying to get better. You know, yes, I look at my phone all the time. Um, but not try not to answer as much late in the evening or over the weekend. It's not sports. WhatsApp. Yeah, unfortunately. I'm finding clients using. Yeah, yeah, really irritating. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. if you say it's sort of, um, if someone wants to get hold of you, they really can handle yeah. it because they'll call, they'll WhatsApp. Oh, they they email and WhatsApp you at the same time. I've just sent you a WhatsApp, so can you have a look at it? Um, or I have a client who WhatsApps me that I've got an email and I'm about to get a call. It's great. I just know yeah. what's coming. You know, <laughs> it's it's just a really tricky balance, isn't it? I think this trying to make sure this we're we're really responsive to clients, but equally that there is some balance yeah. between. I think what's so difficult about it is particularly in what we do. Part of what you offer is that responsiveness and that availability. Yeah. But it, it, it's it's such a good question because actually, if you lean into that completely, it's almost impossible to sustain doing. Yeah. the job so mm. you have to balance it for t to have any longevity and i think that how you do that is quite a difficult question i don't think i've answered it yet mm. i tend to just answer everything yeah it's, you know but... at all hours of the day yeah, yeah. <laughs> 24 7. um i want to move on to your working relationship 10 years working together um include actually more than 10 years because it's 10 years at mtg and then obviously you work together at Allen and Overy for three years. For three years, so years. thirteen years. You've been described by the Legal Five Hundred as the best property duo in the industry. Um, Where did they find these people? I'd love to know first of all how you both met and what you think are the secrets to a long and happy working relationship. Well, they answer the second bit first. <laughs> what did we say? In the, the tolerance. I tolerance. Think. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. How we met is actually it's quite a nice story. It was I was in my second seat at Allen Overy, so a junior trainee. Basically, I'd done six months and you know just about learned how to work photocopier. And I moved into the real estate department because you move every six months. That's just how you know how you do it. Do these different seats. And I I'd heard about Sarah because she was had a quite a niche practice within the sort of A and O world. And I just saw her down the corridor and I thought saw you doing a deal and there's a lot of running around, a lot of velvet, you know, a lot going on. And I thought, I'm going to try and get to know this woman. So I used to just sort of hang around a bit, didn't I? And then it sort of led from there. You noticed me in the end. You still yeah. her. <laughs> it's her and here we are. And then he was always saying, could I, can I do anything for you? Can I? And I went, actually, I've just completed on this house in St. James or wherever it happens. So I said, can you go and get the keys for me? And he, so off I went to Madison Lee to collect this huge box of keys from this Gurkha soldier who was guarding the house. It was grave. But you weren't working at Allen Overy. You weren't just lurking. No, no, I was just lurking outside. Come here. I was employed there, but at top, don't worry. No, and I, and I think it, it, you know, that our relationship has sort of gone from strength to strength. And he was the first person, um, you know, when I set up MTG. You know, 10 years well, It's ago. funny, I didn't realise how close people thought we were or how, how, how obviously we had started to work very closely together even when I was very junior because when you left, Sarah left about nine months before I did um, to join her at NTG. 
And everybody just said for nine months, well, when are you leaving? And I thought, well, maybe I should do it. Because like, <laughs> so the writing seemed to be on the wall. But no, it's a bit, I have to say, it's, it, it, it's We had clandestine question. drinks in the local pub every day. But it's a great question because we never really sit and talk about it, but it has been no. true, true. a wonderful exp experience, hasn't it? We really enjoyed it. No. Well, I certainly No, have. definitely. This definitely. is the moment where Sarah says she's hated every minute. No, not. We, we, you know, we, don't, we don't argue. We might have a little contretemps every so often. Um, but no, I think you, I know exactly what Ed's thinking and he knows what I'm thinking, and even on deals. Yeah. Um, and that I think... Well. What works really well in this world is having a couple, two people who are very aligned and have a similar approach who can work together on things because that is mm. how you alleviate some of the pressures of availability. You know, some of the questions that you ask, which are great questions, those are the big questions of working now. How do you do it sometimes? Well, you have a great team and you have people mm. who trust and that share your values. And if you all work together, that's how you make it yeah. come together. I, I, t I totally agree with that. I think it's just impossible to do this by yourself. No, totally. And you see people who are in this various you know, respective industries mm. trying to do it all by themselves, mm. and it just becomes completely impossible. Mm. And you can never really keep up the sort of yeah. the service levels. I wish to talk to you about the market because we're seeing a number of things at the moment. We're seeing probably a, a, a lack of stock, a, a difference between sort of vendor expectation on price and buyer expectation on price, and probably some uncertainty sort of economically going forward. Are you, are you seeing some similar things at the moment? I mean, definitely that we felt the market's paused um, and things aren't happening. Purchases are, some of them are falling over. We've had a couple recently not going ahead. Not, I think just people are changing their mind. They're having more time to consider as we, we were talking earlier. Whereas the last 18 months, it's been so fast, so furious. People are just, it's changing really quickly. Um, now there is time for for them to, for the clients to think, um, and I think that's what we are seeing at the moment. But the other thing I think, big pieces of kit, old properties that say twenty four, thirty million, who which have been around for a long time, they're hard to shift, um, and they if they haven't shifted in the last. 18 months, two years, I don't think they're shifting now because people want more turnkey. Yeah. That's what we're seeing. So those sort of older properties that need huge refurbishment, whereas there was appetite for it, say, two years ago, it's not. Um, that's one of the areas where I'm seeing the biggest difference between buyer and seller expectations yeah. because seller, so buyers are really looking at that now and thinking the cost of renovating yeah. and refurbishing no. after keeping that property is completely different yeah. than it was pre-COVID. Yeah. And actually, how does the price realign yeah. to that? Yeah. But, but we were also saying it's really important to have context because what we do is often very focused on yeah. the immediate. And so you react to the immediate term, all the markets here. But I think we do have to look at it in the context probably of the last, say, three years, sort of since the start of the mm -hmm. pandemic. Mm -hmm. At the start of the pandemic, you know, I was about to become a partner and I thought, typical, this is going to be the worst market we've had. I mean, the, you know, no one can leave the house. And of course, that was completely not what happened. And I think we went through a period of the last two and a half years, yeah. you know, from then, give or take, which was just extraordinary. Mm. You know, the pace, the market, the value and the volume of value deals of our five, for example, was just extraordinary. And so in a sense, yes, whilst, I mean, obviously that's exactly what we're seeing, as you say, Sarah. But we're going just back to normal, normality. Is it just a rebalancing yeah. or is it a new market? I'm not mm. quite sure. Yeah. But it might be that we're just going back into what, 19 
Yeah. Was like, mm. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I also think there's a there's a there's a thought about we've ha- actually probably had several eight years of really extraordinary marketing mm. for lots of different yeah. reasons. Yeah. But actually, we look a bit further back, which we can all do. Mm. The benefits of hindsight. We used to have markets like this, mm. where you know buyers had some time to make a decision. Sellers might be on the market for a little bit of time before they got an offer. Mm. It's just a much more normal market. Yeah. But it's been extraordinary. Taste, but I think yeah. it's incredibly resilient as well. I mean, even when you look at the various sort of issues that there have been within the banking sector and the not to confidence. I don't think that affects our clients and clients in London particularly directly, but everything is about sentiment. Ultimately, it's about what do people feel? And that's that they're doing a personal deal. Yeah. It's how they feel. That's so important. Um, but, but I certainly think that the resilience of it is incredible. You know, we've done some big deals this year and we see interest and you know, aggressive situations, competitive situations that still arise. So I think narratives tend to swing between extremes. Is it the best market in the world at the moment compared to where it was maybe a year ago? Perhaps not. But is it still resilient and there's a lot yeah. of activity? I would say yes. Yeah, agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to sort of look back um, over the last 10 years in terms of the way residential property has been treated in terms of tax, all the different tax changes that have that have happened over the last 10 years. I think we've all lost count to how much stamp duties changed um, in the time that you started at MTG. In your opinion, um, both of you, what changes do you think have had the most significant effect on clients? I think uh, definitely the stamp duty land tax, without a doubt. Um, It's become so much more complicated for clients, international and UK clients to understand. Um, And the rates are astronomical. Um, And I just think I, I can't think of anything else other than the sort of maybe the non-dom regime, but I think definitely the SDLT has caused the biggest issues. But I think also what we've seen is it's twofold that there's been a sort of successive series of changes since about 2013 to the treatment of what ATED was introduced, capital gains tax for all residents, inheritance tax look through for corporates, you know, all of these changes have come at sort of 12, 18 or intervals. And I think that it, it, you know, that has damaged, but I think that has changed the perception perhaps of the UK in terms of investability. But again, I think it comes back to the remarks we were making about the resilience of the market and how London does still stand out because regardless of that, we still have strong international interest, you know, in this market. So I think that in a sense, maybe that those tax changes, we thought that that would put people off. It, in a sense, it's just a rebalancing to equalize the position between international and domestic buyers. Yeah. And probably pricing has reflected that and we've slightly moved through it. You know, there's not that much more to be done, I think, there. So in a sense, maybe it's not the bad news so, story. And leading on from that, we obviously look after very similar client base of, so, you know, international clients and domestic clients. For an international client looking to buy London for the first time, what would you recommend? What would you, what would your advice then be? Well, firstly, get your advisors in place. That's the most important thing. Whether they're buying agents, selling agents, whatever they happen to be doing, your law, you know, your law, law legal team, so that you're ready. And so we can also, for us, is it we always try and explain to clients the process upfront immediately on initial call so you know and and so they can understand it because it's complicated it's complex um and particularly our leasehold system really really you know hard to explain 
but I think the most important thing is for, for international clients is to engage with advisors right at the beginning before they found the property. Oh, yeah. Mm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. I think many of our clients, especially those coming from abroad, find the process of buying in London extremely complex, especially compared to their own domestic property mm. markets. For example, I'm thinking about our clients in the US, mm. clients in Dubai. I think now in Dubai, you can buy a property in a few hours um, if you put your mind to it and, and legally buy it. Seems to be so much more straightforward in, in other jurisdictions. I think, um, do, you think, do you think our process here is overly complicated? Do you think it's complicated just for the sake of being complicated? Or do you think we have a really great, robust legal system here? <laughs> oh, well, well it's just leasehold, isn't it? That's the word that jumps out. Uh, you know, freehold here in, 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 the, in the UK is fine. And you can navigate most people through that quite easily. You know, obviously there's the sort of listed side of things, but that's different. But I think it's the leasehold system here. That is, I mean, it's so complicated. I think it is. I'm slightly hesitant to say this, but I think it is a system which is ripe for reform. Mm -hmm. And it is a system which some would say, in some respects, is broken. I think we've seen issues that have arisen around things like ground rents over the years, which have been quite egregious, actually. If you step back from it and look at that, that is a remarkable situation to have found ourselves in as a sort of an industry. Mm -hmm. um, but I think some of the complexities are just a function of having a very long established quite ancient actually mm. property market you know we've been doing this for hundreds and hundreds of years and it makes it complicated in a way that where you have markets where there's been a lot of new build activity you can design the system from scratch but we've got we're sort of stuck with what people have done over hundreds of years and actually it does work people's property rights are incredibly protected in many respects in the UK. And that's one of the big attractions of it. That, you know, our system is heavily regulated. That's a pain coming in, but you're quite glad about it when something goes wrong or, you know, mm. you need to prove or secure your ownership. This system does actually help you and protect you and you've got professionals to help you navigate it. One of the frustrations of our clients is that they get an offer accepted and that it takes such a long time to get to an exchange of contracts. And they, they, you know, and even when we've forewarned and advised them, there are so many things that could come up. Is do you think there's anything that clients could do, or that we could do as an industry to help speed that up? Do you think we should have the hit pan back? We sort of nearly do that now for sellers. I mean, the first thing we say to sellers if they're thinking about selling, right, if you get your property ready, and we almost due diligence the the, the, the sale mm -hmm. of the property so we can identify if there are any issues before it goes on the market and maybe we can fix them or sort them out or at least identify them. Yeah. So we will prepare full sales packs other than having a survey. But, um, and I think that that's the best advice if you're selling. Purchases, again, it's the same thing. Get your advisors on board. But the problem with purchases is you are very dependent yeah. on what the seller's lawyers do. Yeah. Yeah. Often the seller's lawyers, you know, often yeah. won't have done much pre-work such yeah. that this comes together. I mean, one example at the moment, which I think is actually very prescient and is a really good example of how this sort of complexity grows, the Building Safety Act, which came in last year, which is to do with fire safety and cladding remediation and the capping of costs that can be recovered from leaseholders in respect of those costs. There's a new sequence of events that are very important for buyers in those mm. buildings to secure capping, basically, of those costs. You've got to, I mean, inevitably, it's incredibly complicated and you need, you know, hours of time to work it out. But what it boils down to is you've got to serve a certificate on a landlord as a tenant 
who will then deliver a certificate back to you. But they have four weeks to do it. And so that is an example of where preparation, say, particularly in the leasehold area, is so important because you immediately have a four-week delay if you haven't done that. And so it, it goes back to Sarah's point about being prepared. Mm. Yeah, I mean, even on the most basic level, things like management packs. Yeah. Oh, we, yeah. We've waited over our, over our Chris how many months and months and months mm. for some mm. of these things to arrive. And they're really simple bits of information sometimes, mm. but they really hold up the transaction, mm. don't they? No, absolutely. absolutely. And I think the problem is it's just about making the system work efficiently. I think the system actually is, is okay. Yeah. yeah. Fundamentally. I think it's just that elements of the system don't work quite as well as they should and that engenders huge delay and so i think what's the solution it's difficult you know maybe we'll all be replaced by chat gpt or whatever it's called you know bring it on go to south france but until then i think that you know that's important but for example going back to leasehold you know what do you do with it it's really difficult to come to an answer that isn't incredibly complicated or that actually doesn't create a whole suite of new problems that arise. So, you know, these things are not easy to unwind. Yeah. Yeah. Changing um, tack slightly, just looking at your bios, I had a nice time reviewing both of your bios on your on your website. Edward, I saw on your bio your list of recent um, transactions. I thought the file was the out of date to the... <laughs> Possibly, but, but it says that you've recently advised on the sale of a £65 million house on one of the main London estates bringing the matter to exchange in 10 working days. Can you talk us through, because we'll be talking about the complexities of the conveyancing uh, process and how long it's taking to get deals done at the moment. Um, 10 days to exchange contracts on a £65 million house. That's incredible. Can you talk us through how you managed to do that? I mean, if, and, and we were instructed I, late. late in the day. Mm -hmm. um, it, I always say this to our juniors, it's about every time you do a deal, you learn something, store yeah. it, remember it, bring it out again on the next one. And it's about hitting the ground running and being really tenacious and pulling it together fast and working with the client, clearing the decks, which goes back to the team point. Everybody else clears the decks for you. We work together and it means you have the space to do it. Mm -hmm. But it was yeah. and elevated. The, and, and, and the buyer's um, lawyers were really engaged as well. Yeah. So they wanted to get... But it, it goes to things like, you know, the, the mm -hmm. team. We did another deal over Easter, typical, but, you know... Four days. Another client was Middle East ahead. Sellers were in the time zone. Behind. You know, it was just pulling it together was quite tricky and everybody was on holiday. But we <clears throat> yeah, we got there, we were nearly there, and then we thought, oh, no, actually, it'll be tomorrow because that's just how the dynamics seem to be unfolding. So me and our associates, who I work very closely with, thought, well, we'll go home. Let's, you know, regroup, we'll do it. Tomorrow. So this was about half ten. The client, on the way home, we nearly each other, surfaced and said, can we do it? Can we do it tonight? We thought, well, actually, we probably can. We probably can. And we thought, well, we're not in this, you know, we're not the office anymore. What do we do? So anyway, the associate pipes up and says, well, when we get to mine, let's jump out. We'll, we'll, we'll exchange. We'll do it at my house. Yeah. And that's what we did. Amazing. And so it's those sorts of things about the team and being yeah. flexible and pulling those things together. I think that is quite, I quite like that example of a sort of, yeah, you do it because... And actually, yeah. there is still that adrenaline rush. There yeah. is still that excitement. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't there? Yeah. Couldn't do no. this job if you didn't want to do that. No. Yeah. Totally. I think you have to have a, a hunger for it. Yeah. yeah. And you have to want to get things 
done, but you've also got to have that side of you that says you've got to do them properly. Yeah. And no, then that's the pride you take in your work. In your work, yeah. That you want, you just don't want to do it quick. You want to do it quick. Um, well, you obviously work in a very regulated industry, but you work with buying agents and selling agents who are not regulated. What's your view about some regulations coming in for the agents? And they would, might be in the US, for example. Mm. I mean, you are quite quite regulated, aren't you, in terms of yeah, the AML yeah. side? We're regulated basically. on money laundering, yeah. but we're not licensed. I think in the US, brokers, to sell property, you've got to take exams and you have to have a license mm. to be able to sell property here. Anybody can become an estate agent. Anyone can become a buying agent. Do you think... I mean, I hate to turn it around. What do you think? What do you guys think? But in port or... So I, so I would say yes. Pen. So yeah. I would say yes. I think there should be, and I think there should be an expectation that um, agents, you know, at the moment, somebody could become a buying agent tomorrow morning. Mm. They could, call, yeah. you know, they say, call themselves Mayfair buying agents, set up a website, and open up a shop and start advising clients. And I don't think that can be right. You know, I think there actually should be a, a minimum standard mm. that they have uh, adhered to in order for them to be yeah. up, and, up and running. So yes, I do, I do think so. I mean, I think it, as I take your point in the sense that in a more ever more regulated world, and you know, we are very, very highly regulated and the, and the regulator rightly is very active in terms of supervision because you know, you have to trust lawyers and you have to know that they're yeah. being watched and we've got to have that mentality. But it, to have no regulation, no entry criteria in some ways mm. when the world is ever more regulated, it feels perhaps a little bit incongruous in some ways, yeah. but it's just making sure that it's meaningful, isn't it? I think it depends also on who the regulator is. I think that's the big argument going on in the property industry, yeah. Asian world, is who's who the regulator? Do it? Who would do it? Yeah. And yeah. What do they stand for? And are they really neutral? And or are they just in it for the money? Yeah, because yeah, it's a big. Obviously, it's a. Big... And what do they ask you? I suppose as well. You know, what are they testing? Yeah. What are they checking? Um, changing subjects totally. Sort of going back to the market and how people are finding properties we're sort of a trend that we've seen for the last few years is the number of off-market transactions just going up and up and up last year for us 50 percent of properties we bought were off market so far this year on average 55 percent of properties we've sourced haven't been on the market is is that a trend that you're seeing when you're getting presented with deals are you is a lot of it not being advertised totally off market or i think a large you know a, a big percentage is off market um but probably not as excuse me not as much as you're seeing yeah. um, but um the agents it's from the selling agents will say it's off market and you get the deals from them but it, yeah so i think for us we've we've seen a lot but um and I think what we've seen that's changed a lot, I mean, just going back to the 10 year thing again, because it's actually quite a nice period of time, just yeah, mollish to a bit of change yeah. Yeah. until too long, but it's, is, is that probably when we started, almost every deal had one of four or five agents. Yeah. It's quite corporate. Buying agents different, but that was very much the market. I think that what we've seen, and it's accelerated certainly over the last few years, much more of a sort of broker community evolve yeah where you see a lot of things that are quietly marketed or are sort of selectively marketed mm -hmm. to competent buyers by you know a, a whole range yeah of really talented but very focused yeah. boutique either sole operators or small groups of people mm -hmm. um or you know small companies and i think that has made shaken up the market a bit yeah i think it's made it really more competitive i think people are innovative i think people work really hard yeah. And I think what we've probably seen is that 
certainly off market very little is publicly marketed on websites mm. and portals vast number of the deals we do you don't see in that sense mm. be it there may well be an agent who as i say is talking exactly. about and but well, what about the rise of you know social media marketing properties have you ever had um a buyer come to you saying i saw this great property on instagram and i'm buying it and i don't know much about it yeah. but i saw i saw the youtube video or i saw a tiktok video look great and no, i want to can you act getting a bit old <laughs> 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 yeah, definitely not no but it's it's interesting this is slightly off topic but what i found quite interesting she following things or you know, follow some of your clients on Instagram. The way people present their lives, the way people want the world to see their property and perceive them and how property fits into their life. I think <clears> you see a lot more of that on social media and, and you see the way that people use what they buy and what they want people to think about them and have yes. has really evolved. Because one of one of so the, the negatives for the buyer about the off-market world is that that property hasn't been openly marketed and therefore subjected to sort of the market pressures on price yeah and sometimes you know buyers run the risk of, of paying a premium for something yeah. that, that's been off market and then if they're financing it the bank may see that and they get a down valuation so how do you handle that when when a client gets a down valuation i think if we if we have a client that's come to us and they haven't you know they've said i found this property i'm paying it whatever it is well who who has told you that price where have you got that from we would often say maybe you need to to ask a buying agent to do negotiation how have you got to this price because if you have a bank that's going to value it and it, the valuation um, is it goes down or you've said you're going to pay x amount for it well then that's the price but we haven't seen a lot of down valuations over the last few years at all which is surprising i think at the beginning when of covid the, the valuers were really nervous. Yes. And I think we did see at the beginning we sort of real nervous. But actually since then, values have held up yeah. strongly. Yeah. I haven't had, I'm just trying to think, I don't think I've had a down valuation. And particularly, you know, the, the, the bigger. Yeah, at the bigger, yeah. Really at all. Or, or if it is, it, it's very moderate. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's, yeah, as you say, in some ways it's quite surprising, but I felt very mm -hmm. much that as we came through COVID, things hardened up again, you know, valuers, became more confident and I think that there is you know the strength of the market has actually carried the valuers up as we've seen more competitive situations and we've seen you know the, the numbers pushing the top of what people would probably feel comfortable paying that's held up with the valuers which it's, has been it's, an interest it's where trend. advice is key isn't yeah toast on the price you know it's where buyers have got to have that <laughs> advice so that they are really confident about the offer that's going forward is actually can be substantiated by what else is sold yeah. in that particular area or that particular building. I mean, generally we have clients come to us via yourselves or from selling agents. So they've already had good advice as to value. Yeah. But I think also what I, what I think is really important with new builds, for example, is not, I mean, pricing obviously is what's important, but it's <laughs> a unit selection. Yeah. And I think that's where often there's a big value add that you can spend the same or maybe a small amount more, but get something which in terms of value and resilience in the market is going to stand up much better. Yeah. I think often people not overlook that, but I think that having some really strong independent advice on that mm. is incredibly really important because you've got to you've got slightly future proof your investment there because you don't yeah. quite know how it's going to trade. Yeah. This is a, it's a, mm. You've both been involved in some fabulous real estate deals, I'm sure, ranging from country estates to new builds to investment portfolios. 
if you each had to pick your best or most memorable deal that you've ever been involved with, obviously we understand you can't be specific. Um, what would it be? Chunkif. I think it was probably, it was during COVID, um, it was about two years, 18 months ago, it was a huge sale of a, a family estate, absolutely huge. And I think what was exciting about it was one, it was a corporate deal. Two, we must have had 20 legal advisors from all jurisdictions. Wow. Wow. Everybody was sitting at home, yeah. basically. Yeah. How this deal got done was unbelievable. And it was a corporate deal that was happened in what? It was short. It was for a corporate deal by, to get to exchange. And it was a very... Um, complex property I think it was about six to eight weeks to get to exchange but that was huge I mean that was me overseeing but the team working you know our MTG team working like stick to get that done I mean I did the completion call I think and it took about <clears throat> five minutes to check everybody was there yeah you know it was a real yeah that's great yeah fantastic when that all comes together but everyone was working really super hard but yeah in a really oh, challenging circumstances at that time. I remember us doing things together. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really, really. really. Yeah. And what about you, Ed? If you had to pick your most memorable video tutorial. I think what I find interesting about this is the most straightforward and simple thing is never actually straightforward and simple. It's always, there's always something. And it could be, you know, two huge titans <clears throat> of industry fighting over a fridge or something, you know, but the motion of it always makes it challenging. But I think the thing that I probably, or the ones I most enjoy actually, are when you've got families buying something that is their, you know, is the culmination of a lot of hard work for them and their family. And and they so appreciate, and you know, we've done some of these, where people are trading up and they're buying in, you know, Adame, it's a prime fringe or somewhere like that. And, and it's a huge moment for them in their lives. Mm -hmm. And you help them through that process and they sort of, appreciate that and at the end of it they say you know what this is really a moment for our family you know i don't want to be overly sentimental because we're professionals and that's what we do we deliver a professional service but i do always really enjoy those transactions and i think that that is what is quite rewarding about this job that actually is people's lives at the end of it and you help them hopefully to live live better you know and that's i was so i got the negative side of this question what are the most challenging deals what, what sticks out was the ones where people start fighting over loo roll holders <laughs> <laughs> you just think but oh and we've had well we've all had plenty of those. Yeah. i think sometimes it's probably the ones i find most difficult or when people really fall out personally yeah i was just going to say sometimes buyers and sellers it, it, often we tr you know obviously you try and filter and that's the role of the agents and the lawyers is to keep things on a very dispassionate level and to diffuse the emotion and that's certainly what i think our job should be you know sometimes people don't manage it, but is to keep professional and get to the goal. But sometimes people really do fall out and those can be mm. difficult. Agreed. And they fall out over the silliest thing. Oh. Absolutely. Well, a new role, isn't it? Yeah. Good evening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And dare I ask, have there ever been any horror moments you've had to advise a buyer or seller not to proceed with the transaction because of something really terrible? I, I always think with that, it's, it, it's so difficult in the advisor role mm -hmm. my clients are always invariably incredibly successful smart people who have built often incredible businesses i always worry slightly that me saying to them do or don't do this is perhaps not very fortunate i think 
pointing out to people the risks and emphasizing when you see them as being very significant ones yeah. is probably the way that we would approach it, isn't it? Yeah. But there have been things which have been difficult. And certainly we've had not often, but sometimes people choose that they you know, they won't they won't proceed. Yeah. I mean, because if they're cash they can take and view. Um and, and we've had a, a mutual client where there was a technical issue. Um but the client could have taken a view, but that everybody wants the lawyers to give 100% certainty and just you can't do that and, um, and another quirk of our system as well which feeds into this is that often banks and buyers yeah. have dual representation so we will act for both bank and buyer which is very standard but obviously you have two clients so yeah. sometimes what the buyer might take a view on the bank you or the bank is not willing to yeah. so it does become quite complicated when these things get more involved or these issues present themselves because it's not often just one person's call or decision it's got to be done on that sort of more collective basis which can make some of this I, I think raising the bank is being a client is actually really important and mm. not many people realize that that actually you mm. have another responsibility totally. and somebody else there you've got to report to and got to get comfortable mm. with the transaction and we have to treat them the same and this is a huge focus i mean going back to the regulation point yeah. the regulator reminds people absolutely right that you have two clients and two sets of interests and instructions and you mustn't prefer you know, you've got to do it properly. So um, it, it, that feeds into this becoming all very complicated at times. Mm. I'd like to turn the conversation on how to pick the right lawyer. What questions do you think clients should be asking their real estate lawyer before engaging them to act? And how do MTV, MTG differentiate themselves? Well, we've, we're changing on it. MTV. I'm glad to exclusively unveil that. Um, I think what we try and do, I will always have a conversation with the prospective client first. So always have that initial call. You know if you're going to fit with that person and then you can discuss the fees and the process and whatever. But I think it's really important to make sure you have that initial conversation and see if you fit because it, that's the most important part of the deal going forward. Yeah, what do you think? I mean, I think that's incredibly important. And I think also probably I've, I think, I think the thing that people don't ask, but I actually always think is a great question is, do you know this road? Do you know this building? Yeah. Have you worked on this before? Yeah. Do you know the estate? Mm, yeah. Do you do a lot of leasehold transactions? You know, those sorts of questions, because yeah. sometimes, I mean, as we know, there is some incredibly quirky path of land, you know, the roads yeah. where you don't own the garden, the queen does, or the estate management schemes and how they interact or how people treat things or very specific issues to do with alterations in yeah. leases, for example. Yeah. You know, do you navigate these? Do you know about them? Mm, yeah. I think that's a great... I think, that's great. I think that's great advice. No influence on this question, but how do you view working with buying agents? We love you. <laughs> I was going to say it's absolutely dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it it's, it's, makes our lives easier, yeah. without a doubt when clients come with buying agents because you've already navigated some of the really difficult stuff. You've got them to the offer, offers accepted and then over to us. But we can also interact with you during the process as well, which is really, really helpful. And you can, you know, solve other problems and issues that are not on our, you know, on our list to do. So I think it's really important. But I think as an industry, what we need to probably do better collectively is <clears throat> is to work sometimes as a team you know yeah. the teams come together for quite short periods of time but i think that using the agents and the mm. knowledge of the client and the knowledge of the property and being on the ground i'm not sure that sometimes people are great at that and i think that 
for us, we've seen the huge benefit, mm. both to advising clients and for our you know, longer standing clients within the firm, there's huge value add. But I think also it's within the deal, it brings more knowledge. And I think not using that is really foolish, actually. Absolutely. Um, changing subjects again, we've, we've got a general election coming up next year um, and people tend to get nervous around general elections. If you're sort of thinking about buying a property, it can kind of put a bit of a spanner in the works. Um, what's your view on a Labour government win, which is what's anticipated to happen? Do you think that might cause havoc with the property market or more of the same? It's probably too early to say at the moment and to forecast what's going to happen. Um, there's, you know, the market will is will always fluctuate, and we know we don't really know what Labour's yeah, tens at the moment. So it's really, they? no, they haven't um, sort of given us any direction. So, yeah. but again, I think as we've said before, London is so resilient, and it might be a stutter. I think there's probably a pause coming, isn't there? Yeah. In the early part of 2024, yeah. just because let's see how it pans out. But I mean, I think probably the big thing that they've announced and that they've been quite strong on is the abolition of the non-dot regime. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that is something that if we get a Labour government is to be anticipated. But other than that, as Sarah says, they've been quite, the cards are quite close to chests, aren't they? In terms yeah. of what the taxation world will look like and specifically to do with property. So. Yeah, and it's likely to be written, but I certainly think it could be a bit more adventurous for the next sort of six, 12 months. What would you, what advice would you give to somebody looking to go into real estate law? A young person who came up and asked you for your advice, what would you say to them? You've got to want to love to do it. You are going, you have to be, you will have to be super interested in this market because it's hard. Um, it's complex, it's technical. You've, you've really got to love it because actually, when I know, I know it might sound really awful, but we're sort of at the bottom of the food tra chain a li little bit in relation to other types of lawyers, um, you know, conveyancing lawyers and not seen as high profile as banking or corporate lawyers. But so you've got to really, really want to do it, I think, because it's hard really hard out there not when i started it wasn't hard particularly but you know with all the different changes in legislation the compliance um yeah i think it's really hard and you've got to want to do it to be honest you've got to have tenacity i think you've got to really like people because <clears throat> business is actually about people so if you're help... interacting with people and you don't like houses you know i, I was reading country life when i was four you know <laughs> it was inevitable but you know i think if you don't love this it's quite all-encompassing as we say and you've got you know that is not a good start without that you've got to like those two things and I think if you do it's a good idea if you could go back in time and advise your younger selves what would you what would you say to yourself I probably you know in my bleak moments I go why am I doing this and I should have been a flower ranger and I would have <laughs> really loved to do that but I'm not really good at flower ranging so that's no good um I think actually I probably would have done the same yeah. and I don't really have any regrets. Um, it's been fun, it's been hard, it's been mad, it's been frustrating, been exhausting and stressful, but it's been fun and the last 13 years with Mr. Burton have been a delight and it's been, you know, and building what we've done over this last 
you know, 10 years has been amazing. It must have been amazing. I feel really proud and it's, you know, it's both of us together um, and I feel really super proud to have done this. You should, you should feel really proud. Look into the future, lots of news about sort of the role of AI and, and as you mentioned, chat GPT. I'm waiting for them to come to me, Casper. <laughs> <laughs> what, what role do you think that's going to play in our worlds going forward? At the land registry, can you tell them? <laughs> no, I think I it's think... going to be, it is going to be really interesting. And I think yeah. if you were a legal professional and you said that this technology will not change how we work, you know, you're the person looking at computers saying this will never catch on yeah. in 1989. You know, the, the, yeah. it's that equivalent. Quite how, I think, another lawyer said this to me and he's much wiser than I am, but I thought it was great. He was like, the problem is the people designing the kit and designing these products and these algorithms and whatever they do, and actually the people on the ground doing the work, they never quite meld yet. They haven't quite brought something that really does what we need it to do. But I think that will happen. And what, you know, the downbeat would say, lucky you guys, you don't have any conveyances to deal with anymore. It, a lot of it is digitized, a lot of it is computerized, and a lot of it is taken out of people's hands. I think probably if that does happen, that's quite a long range, but that's to be seen. What I hope for is that a lot of the work that lawyers have to do, which is really time consuming and actually not a huge value out for the client, a lot of typing, a lot of, you know, those sorts of things actually are automated to a much greater degree. And what we can do is focus on advising, on analyzing, on really helping clients navigate rather than doing a lot of yeah. mm. almost quasi-administrative tasks. Because then actually I think we will we'll be able to do a better job and I think we'll be able to do it more quickly and I think we'll be more effective because we'll be able to actually use our experience and skills to advise rather than just, you know, wait up to 11 o'clock typing. And hopefully that has an impact on cost to the client mm. as well. No, that's what we don't want. <laughs> <laughs> we always love to end our podcast by asking our guests their top tips. So we're going to ask you for some of your top tips. Edward. What would be your one piece of advice to somebody considering buying an off-plan property in London? I mean, you build property and off-plan is a whole different world. I mean, I think I've said some of this before. Get someone who's done it before because there are specific drivers. I think probably the big thing in new build off-plan, fire safety is probably the new frontier that's coming. We're lucky in that. I would have said if you'd asked me this about a year ago, check the lease, check the ground with escalators, check you've got a mortgage protection clause check that drafting now some of those issues developers have changed practice and also legislation has helped us you know ground rents from new leases for example have been abolished so some of those practices have gone but i think that is the most important thing to have someone who can help you navigate and is at the forefront of looking at legislation because what this is and needs to be is changing quite a lot as time goes on i think i'm slightly slightly evolving the question but i think for me, where I've seen some of the biggest risks, as it were, for clients are new build houses that are done by small developers. And I mean, not risks in terms of the physical building, but I mean, in terms of the legal side, in terms of our, our side, you know, you don't have a big team, a large law firm putting together packs. You know, a lot of those bigger developments are very heavily lawyered and very effectively lawyered. So it's often just checking off that it's been done properly, which it has. Often in those smaller developments, we see community infrastructure levy not properly claimed or not paid, then you, you take that on as a buyer and that can be mm. hundreds of thousands mm. of pounds. Yeah, we see planning not done, we see issues with party walls and the special foundations consents, all of these things in small developments. I mean, some are done very well and a lot of it is fixable, 
but that is probably one of the areas where I think that care needs to be particularly taken. I mean, for example, people build their own house and don't get a new home build warranty. I mean, that renders you potentially unsaleable or unmortgageable. So picking up those things is really, really important. So I think that I hope that shows the importance of yeah. Yeah. the thought. Yeah. Mm. I think those are great, great, great tips. I think sometimes people just think buying something that's new is easy. Yeah. And it's simple and they don't need, you know, they don't need advice or they just go with the lawyer that's being recommended mm. by the selling agent, which is obviously mm. a big no-no. Um, so I think those are great tips. Um, For a buyer purchasing a listed property, Sarah, what, what would you say to them? Well, I think the most important thing is to have, in addition to the survey, the heritage survey. Um, and I know a lot of selling agents don't like us when we recommend that because they know someone's going to be crawling all over it who knows what they're talking about and making sure I mean the whole purpose of the heritage survey is to make sure that any works that have been done have been implemented in accordance with those listed building consents and planning permissions but absolutely vital and we I don't think we bought one listed building that doesn't have an issue that doesn't have some form of breach um but it's absolutely vital that that is done because you know it's criminal um, enforcement proceedings if 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 they're in breach and everyone always sort of says well you know nobody's going to know nobody's going to know if um, nobody tells the local authority but often our clients will want to do works and then they open you know you get the local authority coming back so yeah that's the best piece of advice because you could go in sorry with your eyes wide open and know exactly what's what and we've and we've we've you know clients walked away from a property before because they knew that if the remediation works had to be done that wasn't the house he wanted yeah so um yeah really important i think those are great tips thank you both so much for coming on to today's podcast we really enjoyed really enjoyed having you well, that brings us to the end of this month's episode of Finding Perfect Property, Diary of a Buying Agent. Thank you to Sarah and Edward from MTG for joining us and sharing their expert insights on how best to navigate the complex process of buying property in the UK. Please join us again soon for more expertise from across the UK real estate market. For more information about how to purchase property in prime central London, please get in touch via our website, and don't forget to like and subscribe on whichever podcast channel you use to listen. See you next time.